Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Find your Bible if you would. If you brought a physical copy with you, we're in the book of James. If you brought a digital copy, uh, find your way to James chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath a chair rack. Be sure to use that, if, and you can take that home with you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word that's yours, be sure to take that and use that. And if you're using that particular copy, page 952, we'll get you right to James chapter 4. We've been in a series that we have entitled, Gospel on the Ground. We're putting handles on the gospel. We want to put the gospel in our pockets, and we want to take it with us to our Monday mornings. Gospel on the Ground. James is... A pastor in the early church. As a matter of fact, these would have been first-generation Christians. There were no Christians before the Christians that James is writing to. This is the earliest New Testament letter. So James is a pastor in Jerusalem. Some Jewish Christians who've come to faith, they're just beginning to engage with this new way of the gospel. What does it mean? What does it look like? They have been scattered because of persecution. And so now James writes the letter that we hold in our hands today to encourage these early Jewish Christians in what it means to live out this new way of following God through the finished work of Jesus that we call the gospel, the good news. I appreciate Derek last week. Amy and I got some time away, and that was refreshing for Amy and me. I appreciate Derek uh, really continuing in this series and handling the word of God with faithfulness uh, last Sunday, and we're just going to pick it up right where he left off in verse 13. Keep your finger there. We're going to read that in just a moment. As we consider the text that we're going to look at today, really all of us live by life principles. These life principles govern how we live, how we interact with others, what we do, what we don't do. My wife Amy has a principle that she lives by that if she has a vivid dream about somebody, she just takes that as from God. And she intentionally spends additional time in prayer for that person, not knowing necessarily what might be going on. But that's a life principle that she lives by. Joel is our executive pastor. Joel lives by a life principle that he will never, under any circumstances, use sticky notes. If, if you want to play a practical joke on Pastor Joel, all that you have to do is get a stack of sticky notes and just somehow put them into his life. That's a life principle. He, he lives his life governed by the no sticky note rule. Derek, who preached last Sunday, he's got a life principle that he lives by. His life principle is that he will always order last at a restaurant. Now, that sounds really noble, like a servant leader, but there's a reason underneath that. So when he goes to a restaurant with a group of people, he's going to order last, not because he's trying to serve you and put you first, but because he has this life principle that he cannot order something from the menu that someone else is planning to eat. <laughs> and so if you ever go out with Derek, watch for it. Uh, he will let you order first because God forbid you would have the same entree as him from the menu. I have a life principle I live by. And uh, every, you know, every year, New Year's comes around and everybody's doing these uh, New Year's resolutions. I have a life principle that if, if something is important enough to be a New Year's resolution, it's important enough to start today, whether or not it's New Year's. Just, hey, if it's important, let's start today. 
these life principles. And the reality is all of us are who we are in part because of these kind of life principles. And maybe you had somebody speak into your life some of these principles. Maybe it was a parent or a coach or a mentor or maybe a pastor or a youth pastor or even a boss. They teach you these things like to be, early, to be on time is to be early. Or if, if you're going to live life where you have control over your money, you need to live life on a budget. That's a life principle. So that your money doesn't control you, you're now controlling your money. Or maybe the life principle is uh, don't date somebody that you wouldn't also be willing to marry. I remember I had a youth pastor that kind of instilled that into me. These, these are the life principles by which we live our lives and they give some structure and some form to make sure that we are living the life that we would desire to live. Maybe there were some life principles instilled in you that were spiritual. A principle such as you are not defined by what you do. Your value to God is not in what you do, but it's in who you are. Or maybe the life principle of practicing the rhythm of a Sabbath. Establishing a day or a portion of a day where you are going to cease from all of your earthly labors so that you can recognize your confidence and trust in God. Or the spiritual discipline or practice of setting aside a portion of your financial increase that would first go to God. These kind of life principles that we live by. So today, Pastor James, he's going to give us a life principle. And I guarantee you that it will change how you live and it will help to shape a life lived on mission for Jesus, putting the gospel right where it belongs, on the ground, if you will live by this principle. So now let's go to our text. Get your eyes on the scripture. Be ready to engage with this. We're going to study this. We're going to read this. We're going to trust the spirit of God to apply this. Chapter 4, verse 13, James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and here's the principle, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So here's the big idea. It sits over top of the text that we're going to unpack for the next 30 minutes or so. If you are in the habit of taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. Here it is. Christians must always live by the principle, if God wills. That simple principle or any variation of it, Lord willing, God willing, if God will, if this would be the Lord's will, Christians must always live by the principle, if God wills. Now the reality is, we all like control, but control is an illusion. And, and we, we fight to have control of our lives, but listen, all it takes is one email. All it takes is one phone call. All it takes is that one conversation with that boss or that one conversation with that person that you hoped that you would spend the rest of your life with, and all of a sudden, your well-ordered and organized life comes falling and crashing apart all around you. We like the idea of control, but oftentimes... The reality is control is an illusion. As much as we would like to have our plan, as much as we would like to have our ducks in a row, 
It doesn't take very much for that plan to fall apart. So not having control does not mean that your life is out of control. As a matter of fact, for a child of God, for a follower of Jesus, we live our lives as a God-controlled life. That my life is under the control of God. And so I like to think of it this way, that we hold our life with open palms. Everything in our life, we're holding it like this, as opposed to like this, or like this, or like this. Everything in my life, I'm holding open-handed before God. God, if this is your will, we'll do it. God, if this is not your will, I'm going to release this to you. Living our lives according to this principle and allowing God to lead. Every Christian must live by the principle, if God will. So the question then becomes, why must I live according to this principle? Why is it so important? James in this text is going to give us five compelling arguments to, to answer that question, why we should live according to this principle. Here they are. There's a lot of them. There's five of them. I love the number three, and typically we've got three, but today we got five. So hang with me here. We're going to move through them pretty quickly. There's going to be a lot to unpack. The outline's going to look like this. I must always live by the principle, if God wills, because, number one, tomorrow is pending. Tomorrow is pending. Look at it in verse 13, into the first part of verse 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow is not yours to spend until tomorrow is today. And until tomorrow is today, tomorrow is pending. James is writing during a time of economic and commercial growth. There is prosperity coming to this re these regions where these Christians were. And many of these Jewish Christians were getting involved in this. And they were building businesses. And there's not certainly something necessarily intrinsically wrong with that. But what they were doing is they were trying to tell the future what the future was going to look like. And they had a detailed dis business plan. By the way, I, I, I kind of resonate with this. Uh, this is my kind of person. Like... Today, tomorrow, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Here's the plan. We got some tenacity. We're going to get it done. We got a plan B and a plan C in case plan A falls apart. The only problem is they left something out of their plan. God. They had everything figured out. They knew what they were going to do. They, were, they knew how long they were going to do it. They knew the reason they were going to do it. They were going to make a profit from this. But they left God out of this equation and out of this planning. One author said they planned as if they were omniscient, omnipotent, and invulnerable. So reality check. You and I don't know the future. As much as we would like to, as much as we should plan for the future, we don't actually know the future. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's pending. All of your business acumen, all of your ability to read and, and predict the stock market, all of what you have learned from the experts and from the influencers and from the school of hard knocks does not give you the ability to actually know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. There is only one who exists outside of time. The psalmist said of God, before the mountains were brought forth, or wherever you had formed the earth and the world. Then he says, from everlasting, that's all the way that way, to everlasting, that's all the way that way. You are God. There is only one who exists outside of time and who truly understands and knows what tomorrow will bring. So we are fools to think that we can predict it. 
Nothing takes God by surprise. Think about that. God has never said, oh, I didn't see that coming. God knows how all of the events on your timeline are going to connect and interconnect both the good and the bad. And God, in his providence, weaves both his sovereign will with your free will in order to accomplish what he desires to do in and through your life. So your only control over tomorrow is what you do with today. It's what you do with the present. That's the only part of the timeline that we actually can live in. Some people live in the past, but you can't, make it, you can't change the past. Some people try to live in the future like they were doing here, but James is saying that's foolish because you're disregarding God in those plans. So really, where do we need to live right now, right here in the present? When I have a check and I go to the, to the uh, ATM deposit and I deposit that check and then I go back and I look at my checking account, it will say next to that check, pending. Pending. And I... I have every reason to believe that that check is going to clear, that it's going to be validated, and that I will be able to spend the money that I just deposited in that check. But until the pending goes away, I can't actually spend that check. That money is not accessible to me. And the reality is you and I cannot spend tomorrow until tomorrow is today. Because tomorrow is pending. It is not yet here. It has not yet arrived. And so we live by this principle, if God will, because we just don't know what's going to come tomorrow. So would you rather, who would you rather? Who would you rather have leading your life? Someone blind to the future or someone in control of the future? Someone bound by the confines of time or the one who created time itself? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So we live by this principle, if God wills. I must always live by the principle, if God wills, because tomorrow is pending. Number two, because life is short. Look at the second half of verse 14. What is your life? What a weighted question. For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. My wife is gifted in hospitality. We have people over pretty regularly on Sundays, and uh, she has this, uh, this way of kind of getting into the conversation there at the table. We're maybe wrapping up our meal, and she'll bring out the coffee. You know when the coffee's come out and the desserts come out that Amy's about to drop one of these heavy questions, one of these soul-piercing questions, like, what's God doing in your life right now? You know, and it's like, whew. Pass me the coffee, you know? So, like, this is one of those questions. What is your life? Can we just sit in the weight of that for a moment? How would you answer that question? Let's just zoom out from everything you've been wrestling with this week. What is your life? What defines it? This past week, as Amy and I were away, we were in Nashville, Tennessee. People go to Nashville, Tennessee for, like, one reason. Because music is their life. Either that or cowboy boots, you know. So they go, they go to Nashville, and they're looking for their, their big break. And you, you, we walked, I think it's Broadway is like the main road there in Nashville. And we were walking up and down. They got all these restaurants, these eateries, and these bars. And a lot of it's like open air. And like every single level of these old industrial buildings is a different restaurant. And there's a different person playing in each one of them. And you just like walk down the street, and there's all this chaotic music coming from all different directions. Because everybody's trying to get their big break. Music is their life. What's your life? 
Maybe your life is your kids, your family, your grandkids. Maybe your life is pickleball. I don't know. Online gaming. Maybe your life is your career, your education. Maybe you're trying to build something. Maybe your life is, is community involvement and activism. Maybe your life is just getting outdoors and camping and hiking. Like, I don't know how you would answer that particular question. But here's the thing. James is not trying to say that one answer is right and another answer is wrong. He's not about to tell us the right answer to that question or rebuke us if we had the wrong answer to that question. It's not so much how you answer the question, what is your life? It's this overarching universal reality that no matter how you would answer that question, your life is short. And my life is short. So however you would define your life, it's brief. It's a mist. You appear for a little time and then you vanish. The psalmist said, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And in the end, everything will ultimately, as James says, vanish. There was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Solomon, and God gifted him with a unique ability to have wisdom. And one of his frustrations as he looked at life and studied life is that everything that he built in his life when he died would ultimately be given to someone else. And his assessment of all of that was it's vanity, it's empty. That's just the reality. Everything that you do with your short mist of a life is ultimately going to be passed on to somebody else. You're not taking it with you. It's short. It's brief. So we need to allow God to filter what we do with our short life. And we allow God to filter what we do by practicing this principle, if God wills. God, if this is your will, I will pursue this degree. God, if this is your will, I will take this promotion. God, if this is your will, I will move my family to this new location. If this is your will. And if it's not, I won't. Living by this principle allows God to filter so that we don't waste the short amount of time that we have. Boy, how much time do we spend giving our life to things that have so little significance and eternal value? We already have a short life. And yet we spend our life scrolling our phones and involved in relationships that are not leading us closer to Jesus and doing these things that do not have great eternal significance. We don't know how much time we actually have. Think about it this way. Age does not necessarily determine how much time you have. You could be sitting here in your 20s thinking, man, I got, I got my whole life ahead of me. And yet you might actually only have a few months or another year or two. At the same time, you might be sitting in here in your 60s thinking, man, look at all these young people in their 20s and 30s. My life's over. God's done with me. There's not much left. And the reality is you might have 20, 25, 30 really strong years left. The mirror is deceiving. You don't actually know how short your short is. You don't actually know how short your mist is. And so if you're sitting here and you're in your 20s thinking, man, I can live for myself today and I'll live for God tomorrow, that's foolish thinking. By the same token, if you're here and you're up in years a little bit and you're thinking, boy, I've lived my life, I'll leave, I'll leave serving God to everybody else. That's just as foolish. We want to give our lives to what matters most. I remember someone telling the story once, asking this question, what is the most significant part of a tombstone? Is it the stone itself and how elaborate it is that is a reflection of how much money somebody made in their life? Is it the short epitaph written there, a loving father or a gentle mother? Is that the most important thing? Is it the birthday? Is it the death day? What's the most important part of a tombstone? And then they went on to explain that the most important part of a tombstone is the dash. 
It's the dash between the birthday and the death day because that dash represents what you actually did with your short mist of a life. So we, w- we don't want to just spend our lives as if we have so much of it to give away. We want to steward our lives knowing that there's no guarantee that tomorrow exists or that we would even have another day to give. So we live by this principle. God, if this is your will, I'll do this. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know how short our short life is. So we live by this principle. Number three, I must always live by the principle if God wills because, number three, surrender is wise. This is verse 15. And this gets us right to really the crux of this paragraph. As a matter of fact, verses 13 and 14 are leading to verse 15. Verses 16 and 17 are looking back at verse 15. This is the principle. Instead, he says by comparison, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, we will live and do this or that. Instead of saying, I've got my plan, we're going to go to this city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to buy, we're going to sell, we're going to make a profit. Instead of that, what you should do, what you should say is, if God wills, we will do this or we will do that. And again, the emphasis is not on the this or the that. It's not necessarily on the plan. It's on who controls the plan, who's calling the shots in your life. And so I would say to you this morning, make your plan. God is not against planning. God is not against being ready for the future. As a matter of fact, Jesus commended planning and counting the cost in Luke 14. He said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Then he goes on and says, What king going out to encounter another king will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? There is planning. There is counting the cost. There is strategizing. God is not against that. Make your plan, but make sure that you are bringing God into the plan, and I would even say into the process of the plan. Because it's not just about saying, Here's my plan, God. Can you sign off on it? But it's about saying, God, would you lead me? Would you walk with me in this? I don't know what would be best for my future. And so surrendering to God, both the plan and the process, is wise. Parents, I don't know if your kids ever do this. Mine do this. But my kids will speak things into existence. Things that I never said. Things that I never promised. Things that didn't even come off my lips. My kids will speak them into reality. And it usually starts with one of our children typically the oldest, having an idea and then formulating a plan around that idea and then rallying his brothers around that idea and then, and then convincing them that dad said we were going to do this idea. And then they come to me and they're like, dad, this is great. We're so excited about going out with you to get ice cream. And I'm like, ice cream? I never even said anything about ice cream. And then they get mad at me and they get angry at me and they, they accuse me of lying because according to them, I promised ice cream, but I never even said the words ice cream. They, they speak things into existence. And don't we do that with God? Don't, don't we presume upon him and just say, God, you got to do this because it was my idea. You got to do this because I put together this plan and it's great. I mean, you don't even have to break a sweat, God, putting together a plan and a strategy. I got it. Here it is. Could you just like bless it? And God's like, I never even said ice cream. Like, you didn't even bring me into the process. Wisdom acknowledges that God's plan is always the best plan. 
It may not be your plan. It may not look like your plan. It may not be according to your time frame. It may not be according to even your destination and where you wanted to ultimately get. But trusting the confidence of a good God that his plan is best. Do you know what that requires? Surrender. And if we could just be honest this morning, that's like the hardest part. The yielding, the surrendering to God. I'm going to have to have faith. I'm going to have to have confidence in his character. I'm going to have to deny maybe what I was planning and what I desired. But this is what Jesus showed us. Jesus modeled this for us in the garden when he went to his father in prayer just moments before he would go to the cross. And he prayed this prayer in his humanity saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. He was looking forward, knowing what he was about to partake of, what was going to be poured out on him through the cross, not just in the physical pain, but in the spiritual pain of bearing your sin and bearing my sin, bearing literally the weight of the world on his shoulders and being rejected and turned away from by his father. And he says, Father, if it's possible, if there's any other plan B, if there's any other way, if there's any other path that we can get to the same destination that does not include the cross, would you allow it? But then he says this, nevertheless... And in that one word, there is the surrender. Nevertheless, not what I will, Jesus says, but what you will. And we are all beneficiaries of Christ surrendering to the will of the Father. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been a recipient of the free gift of eternal life through the finished work of Jesus. And it is the finished work of Jesus because Jesus went from the garden to the cross in obedience to his Father. So add that statement your everyday vocabulary if God wills if God wills or any variation of it you can even use the word nevertheless if you want to take Jesus word nevertheless not what I want but what you want I must always live by the principle if God wills because tomorrow's pending life is short surrender is wise number four pride is evil pride is evil it's in verse 16 as it is, James continues, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 16 is the attitude that makes verse 13 a problem. Verse 13 is I've got this plan. I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to buy. I'm going to sell. I'm going to stay there a year. We're going to make some profit. James is pointing out underneath that in verse 16, you are boasting in your arrogance. It's pride. The word boast here means to be loud-mouthed. And the original word underneath the word arrogance, the root word there, has this idea of wandering about. So it's like we're wandering about just being loud and boastful about our plans and our agenda. This particular combination of words would have been used in this day to describe a charlatan. Somebody who was peddling false, phony goods. Somebody who was essentially lying, trying to get you to believe a false truth. And isn't that me? When I boast in my plan, I am boasting about something that doesn't actually exist. I'm boasting about tomorrow when tomorrow is pending. I'm boasting about my life when my life is short and I'm not even guaranteed that I'll be able to accomplish my plan. Like a charlatan trying to peddle false and phony gifts, here we are trying to peddle our plan with God. And then James says very succinctly and very plainly, all such boasting is evil. That kind of pride is evil. That's the same word used in the Gospels to describe Satan. Evil. 
In, in Isaiah chapter 14, we see the account of Satan's fall. And, and as I read this, I cannot help but notice the number of times the word I shows up. You said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is the pride and the evil that was in the heart of Satan, who, by the way, was created to be the anointed cherub, a beautiful angelic being to, to, to uh, cover the throne of God. And as he covered the throne of God, worshiping the one, the, the Elohim who sat on that throne, something in his heart began to desire that position. I, 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 five times. And anytime you and I go out and try to scheme and plan apart from God, that same evil exists in our heart. That pride that says, my way is better, my plan is better, my timing is better than God's. And does not the gospel teach us that it is not about my plan and it is not about my work. It is ultimately about the work of Christ on my behalf and now the work of Christ in and through me. So following God will require humility. Humility, as we learned last week from James chapter 4 and verse 10, James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's a DIY project. It's a self-project. Humility. Now God can use circumstances oftentimes to humble us, but it's a whole lot better when you recognize your need for it. So when's the last time you went to God and said, God, I can't. I can't. I don't know. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your direction. I need your leading. Humble yourself and you have this promise that God will exalt you. He will respond to you. Living by this principle is necessary because pride is evil. Number five, last verse, last point. I must always live by the principle, if God wills, because negligence is sin. Pride is evil, and negligence is sin. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's the context here? The context is living by this principle. James is essentially saying, now you know. <laughs> now you know. I just laid it out for you. This is the principle. You should live by this principle. It's wise to live by this principle. Now you know, and if you don't, negligence is sin. We like to use the phrase, ignorance is bliss, and it is, isn't it, when you just don't know? <laughs> like, just don't tell me, and I don't have to be held accountable for that information. Ignorance is bliss. I grew up getting the Saturday uh, newspaper, and in the Saturday newspaper, there were cartoons. Some of you maybe have never experienced that, because you're not old enough to experience that, but one of the iconic comics in the Saturday morning cartoons was Calvin and Hobbes, okay? Calvin and Hobbes. Now, Calvin is this little boy. Hobbes, I think, is a tiger. I don't know if it's real or make-believe. Maybe it's a stuffed animal that in his mind comes to life, and they're on all these adventures together. So there's this one Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin is being pushed in a wagon by Hobbes down this hill. And Calvin says, it's true, Hobbes. Ignorance is bliss. Once you know things, you start seeing things everywhere, and once you see problems, you feel like you ought to fix them. And fixing things always seems to require personal change. And change means doing things that aren't fun. I say fooey to that. And as the cartoon kind of picks up, you see that they're gaining speed as they're going down. 
Calvin continues, but if you're willfully stupid, you don't know any better. So you can keep doing whatever you like. The secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. In the next frame, we see Hobbes, the tiger there, the stuffed tiger, with his eyes bulging, exclaiming, we're heading for a cliff. And then you see Calvin with his hands over his eyes. I don't want to know about it. In the next frame, you see them free-falling off the cliff. And in the final frame, you see Hobbes sprawled out. And he says, I'm not sure I can stand so much bliss. And Calvin with his head in the dirt and the busted wagon next to him. Careful. We don't want to learn anything from this. Ignorance might be bliss, but negligence is sin. And we can no longer claim ignorance when it comes to this principle. Because now you know. Pastor James has just laid it out for us. And our problem is less about knowing what God wants us to do and more about actually obeying. We are hearers, but we are not doers. May God bring us back to the place where we are not just hearing and knowing, but we are also doing and living and obeying. God's will. If it's God's will. That's not just a platitude. That's not just something we tack on. That's not just our way of manipulating God into ultimately getting what we want. It means that if God doesn't will, we won't. God, if you're not in this, I will not disobey and sin against your will by going forward with it against your will. By the way, this is not about putting a question mark where God has put a period. Saying, if God wills, is not about going to things that Scripture clearly says are God's will or are not God's will and questioning those things. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, can I tell you, God's will for you is that you would be saved. God's will for you is that you would repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross and receive that free gift, 1 Timothy 2.4. That is God's will for you. God's will, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.3, is our sanctification, child of God. That theological Bible word just means that we are growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus in the way that we talk, in the way that we think, in the way that we live, in the way that we interact, in the way that we love. We are becoming more like Jesus and less like our old selves. That's God's will. God's will is for you not to be anxious, but to pray for all things. God's will is for you to walk in step with the Spirit. These are things that Scripture already lays out as the will of God. So if God wills, it's not about putting a question mark where God's already put a period. If God has already said, this is my will, then I can quote this verse in verse 17 to you for that matter as well and say that negligence there is sin also. We walk in obedience to the Lord. Well, before we wrap up and conclude this paragraph, I was thinking about this matter of God's will, and maybe you're here today and wondering, well, what do I do when my will contradicts God's will? What do you do when your will contradicts God's will? And maybe you're there. Maybe you have a dream. Maybe you have plans. Maybe you've had some some pursuits in your life, and you feel like God might be taking those away from you. Something that you thought was going to work out, and now all of a sudden it doesn't seem to be. What do you do? When your will contradicts God's will, start with prayer. Pray. Pray. Prayer is not about you manipulating and strong-arming God into getting your way. Prayer is about God taking your heart and aligning it with his will. Pray. Spend time with him unhurried in his presence. Pray. And then trust. Trust. 
Uh, trust that God is a sovereign God. Trust that God is one who knows what is best. And then thirdly, obey. You're going to have to do what you know he's leading you to do. Or you're going to have to not do what you know he's leading you away from doing. Obey. God honors that obedience. Even when it's hard, he honors that. And then, fourthly, repeat. Pray, trust, obey, and repeat. Submission to God is a lifestyle. It's not a one and done. It's again and again and again and again. Coming back to God, saying, God, is this your will? It is? Okay, I'm going to follow you. Is it your will? No, it's not? Okay, I'm going I'm to not do that. Living a life of surrender and submission to God. I grew up in a home that had scripture verses on the walls. And maybe you did too. And if you grew up in a home like mine where scripture was posted on the walls or it was in picture frames and different things like that, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 probably made the cut. Was probably on the wall somewhere in your home like it was in mine. So I've got it here. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I want, I want us to say this verse together. Can you say this with me? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In all your ways acknowledge him if God wills. So that big idea is that Christians must always live according to this principle. Add this to your list of principles, whatever they might be. You live by the principle of always managing your money through a budget. You live by the principle that to be on time is to be early. You live by the principle that sticky notes are from Satan. Like whatever your principle in life is, add this to your list. If God wills. If God wills. If God wills. Well, we want to learn to live this morning because we don't just want to learn to learn. So I've got three final questions for you that I believe will help the Spirit of God make application on this text. And we want to engage with these and let God do what He wants to do. Number one, my first question for you is this. Is your future secure? Is your future secure? Life is short. Tomorrow is pending. So it's pretty important that we deal with this today. Is your future secure? And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't know what it means to have that sin debt removed and forgiven through the work of Jesus, then friend, I love you, which is why I want to tell you that your future is not secure. It is only through the work of Christ that we can have confidence as we sang that hymn of heaven a moment ago that we will stand on that day with Christ. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 about a rich man, a businessman, and his business was exploding. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build up bigger ones, and I'm just going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. I'm going to do all these things because of how blessed I am. And then God in that parable says, you're a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And I don't know how much time you have any more than I don't know how much time I have. But if your future is not secure and if you have not put faith in Jesus Christ, friend, today would you do that? By simple faith in Jesus. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to become some denomination or wear some label or raise some flag or claim some things. You just have to trust and believe in Jesus by faith. And if you'll do that, your sin will be forgiven and your future will be secure. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ and your future is secure, my, my second question for you is this. What decision do you need to release to God? 
What decision have you been holding like this that you need to hold like this? Now, the reality is every decision needs to be held like this. All of life needs to be lived in submission and surrender to God. But chances are there's one thing in particular that's kind of a big thing and it's been on your mind and you've been planning and you've been scheming and you've been, you've been working towards it. But have you brought God into that? Have you brought him in not just to the plan but also to the process? What decision do you need to release to God? Do it today. And then thirdly and finally, what about your plan? And I put that in quotes. What about your plan is keeping you from God's mission? Because if anything about your plan is keeping you from God's mission, I can tell you it's probably not God's plan. Because followers of Jesus are mission people. We are here to advance the kingdom of our king we are here to make him known. We are here to bring others into, uh, to help bring others into a relationship with God and to tell them about how they can have a relationship with God. So what about your plan is keeping you from being a part of that? Surrender that to God as well. This is the principle. If God wills. Imagine how your life and my life would change if we would just incorporate that principle and live according to it day in and day out. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for these few moments that we've had to consider your word, this text, the authority that comes to us from your spirit, and now to submit ourselves to that authority and to say, God, whatever you want, whatever you will, whatever change needs to happen, let it be. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified through the obedience that takes place from the hearts and the lives of your children today in response to this text, and we'll thank you for it. I pray that if there's somebody here and their future is not secure, they don't know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they have a personal relationship with you. I pray that even before the day is done that they would find me or one of our pastors or come to our prayer team and get that settled and get that secure so that they can know that their future is settled, that they can have a confidence in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. God, do what only you can do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church... Go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.